Many of you will recognize Cindy. She's often on stage uh, as part of the worship team. And uh, glad to have Cindy sharing today. Uh, I won't say much about this. I know she's going to. But uh, as we begin our Advent series, which is actually going to be um, you know, looking at some of the genealogies of uh, Jesus, I know that this is an area of expertise for Cindy. She'll explain more of that um, in a moment. Um, but I just want to take a moment for us to pray for her as she prepares. Uh, you might not realize it, but sometimes it can be hard to do this. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Cindy, just want to pray for you and uh, all of us together. So let's just uh, direct our attention to the Lord for a moment. Lord God, we thank you for this child of yours whom you love and whom you have gifted in many different ways. We thank you that today she has chosen to use those gifts to serve you and to bless all of us. And so we pray that as she does so and as she seeks to honor you and all of us with the words you have prepared within her heart and mind, I pray that you would help her to be mindful of what your spirit is saying to her and through her as well, and that you would enable her to speak with clarity and confidence the truth of what you would have us to know today. Whatever uh, is not from you, may it fall away, but whatever is from you, may it stick. And may you use, uh, by your spirit, may you use it to grow us to be more like you, Jesus. So we thank you for Cindy. We pray that you would uh, settle her nerves, give her peace and confidence and clarity as she speaks to us today. In the name of Jesus, by the power of his spirit, we pray. So you might be wondering, why is this one up on the stage today? No worries, I'm wondering that myself. <laughs> but everything's all good. This is not my first time preaching. This is my second time preaching. So I am a total expert. So before we get started, you might know me as the business owner, the oyster lady. Um, but you may not know that I also have a bachelor degree in biblical studies from Crandall University and a master's degree in Old Testament studies from Acadia Divinity College. So um, this that I'm going to talk about is definitely in my wheelhouse. I uh, had done my thesis on this for my bachelor's degree. So quick story about that, it's kind of funny. Um, I specifically looked at the five women who were in the genealogy and why they were there. And uh, everybody at ABU in order to graduate had to do a presentation on a paper that they had written. So they, they had done a print-off, and I don't know why they do it this way. One side of the print-off was the titles of all of the different seminars, and the other side was the names of the people who were doing the seminar. So you couldn't see them at the same time unless you flipped the page. Doesn't make any sense to me. But it, it was great because I was sitting at uh, the cafeteria table with a couple of other guys. And they were like going through. And they are like, oh. one of them said, who's this? Exploring Jesus' feminine side. Because that's what I had called my thesis. And it was going on and on. That's probably some crazy psychology major going on about this and that and something else. And I was like, oh, no, I think that's a really interesting title. And I said, maybe you should flip the page over and see who wrote it. And then he was like, it was you? <laughs> but can't, can't expect anything any different from a guy who went in to talk to his faculty advisor the first day that he was at school to try to pick out his courses. And the faculty who was helping him said, do you have any you know, particular courses in mind? And he said, 
well, I hear that Dr. Smith is really boring, so I'd really like to avoid his classes. And the faculty advisor looked at him and said, I'm Dr. Smith. <laughs> so, you know, he was always kind of putting his foot in his mouth all the time. But anyway, so anyway, to get into the more serious stuff, first I'm going to talk about um, the role of genealogies in the ancient Near East and in the Bible, and then we're going to get into Matthew and why the genealogy is in there. So, next slide, please. So we're on the island, right? The big question is, who's your father? <laughs> So my answer, which will become clear shortly, is my father's young Russell. And usually if they knew my last name, they could kind of pinpoint where I was. But we'll get into the genealogies here from the ancient Near East. Next slide, please. So one of the main purposes of uh, genealogies in the ancient Near East is to establish a person's roots. So um, we can see this even throughout the Bible. The first way is tribal and economic. So it would orient you to your family, to your nation. Um, and also, it was kind of handy if you had some relatives who you could trade with. So it was nice to know those connections, like the Israelites and the Ishmaelites were related. So it was a lot easier for them to trade together. They're like, oh, we're kind of like family, right? So we see a lot of that kind of uh, discussion in Genesis because they're trying to orient the people of Israel amongst all of the other nations around. The second way is political, and we see that a lot in First Chronicles, because that's all of the, re the records of the kings and what they did, and, and they wanted to keep records of, you know, this king was the son of this king, the son of this king, the son of this king, and try to keep track of who the heir to the throne is. No different than today with Queen Elizabeth. And then the third way to establish roots was religious. Because um, Israel's religious um, program, I guess for lack of a better word, was based in a particular family, a particular tribe of Levi, it was very important for them to keep track of whether or not you were part of that tribe in order to be able to participate in the worship of the Lord, to lead that. So we see that a lot in Ezra and Nehemiah when the exiles came back from Babylon or, and Assyria. They wanted to make sure that the people who were working in the temple actually were eligible to work in the temple. So that's three of the ways that it's important for genealogies to establish your roots. Next slide, please. But the thing that we need to remember is that genealogies in the ancient Near East, they're not like our genealogies, we have them all written down so we can keep track of everything. They had an oral record. They didn't write them down until later on. So that was pretty handy because what they would do is they would incorporate the genealogy into their storytelling. So let's say you had a few important ancestors kind of scattered throughout your history. You would list off your genealogy, and when you got to that important ancestor, you would tell all the stories about that ancestor. And then whenever you would finish the stories, then you'd move on and keep on reciting your genealogy until you got the next one. And then you would talk about that important ancestor and all the things that they did. So it was a good way to bridge gaps. Like, you didn't have to tell all the stories, because it's not very exciting to hear. Well, my ancestry got up and he worked, and he, then he 
you know, he sold some pigs and whatever, and then he died, and oh, now we're on to the next one who did the same, like, that's not fun. So they used genealogies to skip over all that stuff so they could focus on the most important ancestors they had. And then it was great to have an oral record because it provided flexibility. And the reason flexibility was handy is because you might tell it uh, genealogy for a particular purpose. So like I was saying before, if you wanted to establish a trading relationship with somebody, you would go back in your genealogy and see if you could find somewhere where you guys were connected by family ties. And then it made it a lot easier. Okay, we're, we're family, so we can trade together, that kind of thing. Um, another one is adoption. And it's not necessarily adoption in the same way that we see adoption, although it could be. Sometimes people would just adopt uh, people into their family um, to, to increase their status or if they didn't have an heir. For example, this isn't from the ancient Near East, this is more from Rome, but Julius Caesar, he didn't have any children, so he adopted his nephew to be his heir when he died. So that's one of the ways that, and everybody knew it wasn't really his son. They knew that it was his nephew, but he kind of got grafted into his genealogy in order to maintain that um, transfer of power from one person to the next. And the final way is you could use your genealogies to increase your status. So let's say you had like a shady ancestor that everybody kind of hated. You could kind of forget that guy and leave him off. Or if you wanted to increase your status, you could kind of add somebody in who didn't really belong there, but over time, like people would forget that you didn't actually have a real connection to that person, but it would make you more important culturally if you could recite your genealogy and say, oh, look at all these cool ancestors I have. So that's, that's how it's handy when you're just doing your oral genealogies. If it's written down, you can't change it. It's kind of like, well, how did that get in there? So. It was good to have the oral recitation. Next slide, please. So, because it was an oral record of your genealogy, a lot of the times things would happen and the, main, the what scholars call it is telescoping. So, instead of like listing off everybody, you could kind of skip over some people for, for one reason or the other and it would kind of shrink your genealogy and over time it would shrink and shrink. There was different reasons for that. So one, of course, we're talking about a patriarchal society. So if you had no male descendants, you were more likely to be forgotten from the genealogy because there was no connections there to be made, so eventually you might drop off if you had no male descendants. The second thing if, is if there was a disaster, a pandemic, a big war, um, some kind of like, family conflict or something like that, and a whole branch of the family was wiped out, that could be an easy way to start forgetting those particular ancestors when you're reciting your genealogy. And finally, if you had ancestors, like a whole bunch of ancestors in a row that had the same name, you could kind of forget there was three Bobs and kind of conflate them into one Bob when you were reciting, instead of saying Bob, 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 you'd just say Bob, and then eventually it would get forgotten that there were three of them and not just one. So I will, this is all a lot of information, so I'm gonna show you my genealogy and how this works. And you'll notice I'm not there, I'm not a guy. So, you know, just saying. 
So this is the linear genealogy from my great-grandfather all the way to my nephew, Charlie. And you'll see here three Russells in a row, right? So eventually, if this were an oral genealogy, those three Russells might get squished into being one Russell, and that's way, one way you could telescope the genealogy over time. There's also an opportunity for a mix-up, because my brother actually goes by the name of Jacob, not Russell. So if you're looking in the records, you'll see Jacob this, Jacob that, Jacob, and nobody would know where to place him in here if you just remembered that his first name was Russell. So the next slide is called a segmented genealogy. So this shows in the orange, like my direct line, and then in the blue, it's all the relatives in those different generations. Now you see Edgar. Edgar was married, but he went to the war, Second World War, and he died when he was over there, so he didn't have any children. So in an oral genealogy, he would likely drop off over time because he didn't have any children at all. Gordon, he went to war, but he came back, but he had two girls. He didn't have any boys. So in a patriarchal society, he would probably drop off over time. Now, for the purposes of what I'm doing, I'm emphasizing my own particular branch of the family. So I haven't put Harold's sons on here because for the purposes of what I'm doing, they're quote unquote not important. So that's why they're not there. So that incorporates like, this is the purpose of the genealogy, so therefore I'm skipping a few details. And then you can see here too that there may be an additional confusion because my uncle Warren actually goes by Stuart. Some of you may know him, he was once the pastor here at this church. So that is a segmented genealogy that shows the relationships between different people in our family. Now, on the next slide, I'm gonna show you how a woman, a very prominent woman, can be incorporated into your genealogy for whatever purpose there might be. So next slide, please. So my uncle Stuart was married to Mary Jean Irving. She is a member of one of the wealthiest families in this country. So because of that, in the ancient Near East, if you had a situation like that, you might start mentioning the descendants of this prominent woman and include her descendants in your genealogy because of that woman's prominence. And also, if you want to kind of get in there economically or politically or whatever, that connection might be important for you to kind of emphasize. So you'll see, even though Uncle Stuart didn't have any boys either, because of the prominence of their mother, they're now included in that genealogy. Clear? Good? Excellent. So now we'll go to the next slide and we will talk about the scripture that we're gonna introduce for this series. So Matthew. The first verse of Matthew is the introduction to a genealogy. We don't think that's exciting. But Matthew is writing specifically for a Jewish audience. He is trying to establish the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's doing that by listing all of the ancestors. And he introduces that by saying, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. So those are two very prominent people in Jesus' genealogy. David was the king 
to whom the Lord promised that he would have a son on the throne of Israel forever. Abraham was the gentleman to whom God promised your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you will be a blessing to the world. So by highlighting those two people, Matthew is saying this person, the Messiah Jesus, is the heir to those two promises, the kingship of David and the blessing of Abraham. Not only is he the heir, but because he's the Messiah, he's also the fulfillment of those two promises. So he fulfills the role of the person who's going to sit on the throne of David forever, and the person who's going to be the person through whom the blessing of salvation will go out into the whole world. It's no longer just um, Israel that's going to get that blessing it's going to be the entire world that gets the blessing. So he's introducing these ideas to his audience even before he gets into anything. So, but as we know, unfortunately, especially the religious leaders, and a lot of the Israelites did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected him. So this is where the faith gets to branch out. So we'll move into the next thing. So one of the first stories that we see right after the genealogy is the story of the Magi, or the wise men. And these are Gentile people. They live far, far away. But they're on the lookout for signs in the sky. They're looking to see if there's anything unusual going on in the sky that might um, predict events, predict kind of unique things that are happening in the world. And they see when Jesus is born a star, a very unusual star, and they follow that star, and it takes them two years to get there, approximately, and they show up and they say to King Herod, where's the king of the Jews? We're here to worship him, the newborn king. And Herod's like, what newborn king? Like, I'm the king. There shouldn't be any other kings here, and why don't I know about this? So he calls in the religious leaders, and they look up through through the prophecies, and they said, yep, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he goes through all that. But here's the thing. These are Gentile people that don't know anything about this, but they're more on the lookout than Herod and the religious leaders. So Matthew, with this story, which in fact is only in Matthew, you don't find this in Luke. Luke is the Christmas story we usually read, but they don't talk about the Magi in Luke. So this is there purposely to contrast the faith of Gentile people who shouldn't know any better, right? They don't really belong. They're not the ones that God gave the promise to with Herod and the religious leaders who are from Israel. They should know these things. They should be on the lookout for these things. So next slide, please. Then another story in Matthew is where a Roman officer asks Jesus to heal his sick servant. But this Roman officer feels that he's so unworthy that he won't even come and ask Jesus himself. And he says, I don't need to come because all you have to do is say the word and he'll get better. And this is what Jesus' response is. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth. 
I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Matthew has inserted that little comment in there to contrast, like this Roman officer, he shouldn't know any better, but he believes in me so much that he doesn't even think he needs to come. He just says, say the word, and it'll be done. But nobody in Israel is saying that kind of stuff in the same way that this gentleman is. And if you look, the same story is in Luke. This whole section here that I've put on the screen, that's not there. So you can see that Matthew is trying to emphasize this con contrast, the compare and contrast between the Israelites, who lack faith, although they shouldn't, and the outsiders, the Gentiles, who have faith, even though they shouldn't. The next slide, please. So coming on to the end, Jesus is telling some stories against the religious leaders who have rejected him and led also other people to reject him from the nation of Israel. So he's talking about the parable of the evil farmers. This is where the farmer, the landowner, he leases the land to these farmers and says, take care of it for me and pay me what you make from it. And then he sends servants to go collect what he's owed because they're supposed to pay him for renting the land a certain portion of the harvest that they're getting from that land. And they beat them up, they kill them, and then eventually the landowner says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And they kill him too, thinking if we kill him, he's the heir, we'll get the field for ourselves. So Jesus tells that story against the religious leaders and the unfaithful Israel. And he says here, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. So again, Matthew is using that story to compare and contrast the faith that the Israelites should be having, but they're not. They're not listening to what God says. Next slide, please. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I and the same story is in Mark, that same story, the same parable, but he doesn't mention that line that I have up there. Now, now we can look. And then uh, right after that, Jesus tells the story of the great feast. So somebody has prepared this huge party, and he'd already sent out all the invitations, and then whenever the party was ready, he said, okay, the party's ready, you come, and we'll eat. And they're like, no, we're not going to come. So he was very angry, the guy who went to all the work to do the feast. So he said, go out. He said to the servants, go out and invite anybody, anybody and everybody. So the Gentile people who were not originally invited get to go to this feast. And the Israelites who were invited, they refused to go. So again, for many are called, but few are chosen. Next slide, please. And then we can see at the end, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now I've, I've died, I've been resurrected, 
Now it's your job to spread the word everywhere. You've been unleashed on the world. We're now no longer focused on Israel alone. We will still, we'll still pursue Israel as we always have. But I'm authorizing you to go out and spread the word to everyone. But there's another part of the genealogy that I haven't mentioned that also signals this whole comparison of people who should have faith and people who don't, who aren't supposed to have faith, I should say. Next slide, please. So we started out, who's your father? Now I'm switching to who's your mother? Because when you're reading through that genealogy, there's people, there's women in there that you're not expecting to see. Normally, you would think, if any woman is going to be named in here, it's going to be Sarah, the wife of Abraham. It's going to be Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. It's going to be Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob, but they're not there. It's these women who are there. These women, when you read their stories, they're not necessarily the best stories always. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, and had sex with her father-in-law and ended up getting pregnant off of him. That's not a great story. Why would you want to include that in Jesus' genealogy? Rahab was a prostitute, right? Who wants that in their genealogy? Ruth was a Moabitess. She's not supposed to be in there. The whole nation of Moab came about because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Why would you want to add somebody like that with that kind of a legacy in there? There's no benefit to that. Bathsheba, we know what happened there. David asked her to come up. You can't really say no to the king. So he came up, or she came up, he slept with her, and she ended up getting pregnant. And then he had to kill her husband. And then because of that, the Lord punished for the sin, David's sin, by killing the baby. But then Solomon was born from Bathsheba, and he was the one that inherited the throne. And then Mary, if you just looked at the surface of her story, that seems a little shady. A woman who claims that God got her pregnant, like, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that one before. Like, that's, that's not going to fly. So we have these five women who are purposely mentioned in Matthew. These are outsiders. These are people that you don't normally want to include in your genealogy. But that's the point. The point is that Jesus didn't come for the good people. He said, I came for the people who are sick. I didn't come for the people who are well. I came for people who need me. And because these people are included, it gives us hope. And Carolyn read a passage from Romans 11 talking about how the Gentiles, which is probably all of us, have been grafted into God's tree. We don't technically belong there. We're wild. But he broke off some of the branches of his own people who were originally part of that tree and put people into that tree who shouldn't belong there. So because of that, we know it's been made clear that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. 
It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what gender you are, because these women are included. It doesn't matter what you've done, why you did it. It doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter. If you have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, you belong in that tree. You belong in that tree. He's not going to turn you away just because you don't have the credentials that everybody thinks you should have. Isn't that a great thing? Let's pray. Lord, we are so glad that you made a way for us to join into that tree. We are so glad that you didn't go to the people who look good or smell good or were pretty. You went to the people who needed you the most, and they were not always the nicest people. They were not the people that everybody thought, oh, that's a great person for me to associate with. But you came anyway, and any of those people who put their trust in you, they belong. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.